In honor of having done this podcast for nearly six months, we're coming up on our 26th episode, which is half a year. We're going to do a little raffle for Dinamo sneakers. And, and Lily, do you want to tell the people what Dinamo sneakers are? Yeah, they're these really cool high top sneakers made by this brand Dinamo that's been in St. Petersburg since the late Soviet Union, making this exact model of sneakers. So it's very like retro, cool Soviet style. Yes, indeed. And we've posted a picture on our Twitter and Instagram. And the way that you will be entered in the raffle is you just call in and leave a voicemail and include either like your first name or a Twitter handle or whatever. And then that way we can enter you in the raffle and the raffle will take place on December 12th. And then Lily will bring home a pair of Dinamo sneakers for you when she comes home for the holidays. Yes, I will import them personally to you. Isn't that cool? Very cool. This is the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. 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 This is She's in Russia. I'm Smith and I'm in Brooklyn. I'm Lily. I live in St. Petersburg and I'm here in St. Petersburg in my apartment with today's special guest. Molly, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Molly from Los Angeles, living in St. Petersburg. And I got here a year ago to do a two years master's program in political science and history at the European University in St. Petersburg, which is shut down, but I'm but I'm still here. That should be the title of this episode. She's still in Russia because, <laughs> <laughs> because every professor from the university I meet always goes, oh, you're still here? What are you still doing here? So yeah, today we wanted to talk about the kind of ongoing saga with the European University in St. Petersburg, which is a private university that has quite a, I mean, yeah, like a reputation um, here and outside of Russia as being like a high quality institution and also a kind of like bastion of liberal thought, correct? Definitely. It was one of the highest ranking research institutions in all of Russia, at least top five, if not top. But it, it's mostly humanities focused, right? It's mostly humanities. It's the, the school itself only has about 260 students. That's master's and PhD students. But within the different faculties we have, there are also research centers. Like there's like an electoral research center, I think, and a gender studies research center and an energy and gas research center. And those are still going on today, you know. I think a good way of going about this is just, Molly, maybe if you could like introduce the premise of the article you wrote. Yeah, definitely. So this will go back to the question of why she's still in Russia. So there's been a lot of articles in Russian language media, but also in English for the Moscow Times about why the school was shut down, you know, talking about the 2008 fire drill crisis, shutting down of the school and everything. But there was very little information I felt and the editor of the Moscow Times felt about the foreign students. Because up until last year, 
foreign students that studied in the foreign students faculty, like the, it was called the international programs faculty. You actually got a degree called international programs instead of like political science, you know, which was kind of odd. All of these degrees were only one year masters, which in Russia doesn't count. It doesn't count as a legal master's. It also doesn't count as a legal master's in Norway and a few European countries. But the rest of the world, like America, thinks it's totally fine. Anyway, it was only last year that the school started offering a fully government-accredited two-year master's degree to foreign students, which is what I took advantage. So I could come here for two years and get a government-stamped official two-year master's degree. Um, so the problem is when the school shut down, not a lot of people knew that foreigners were also left in the lurch, if that makes sense, because the school had operated for so long with foreigners only being there for a year. Mm. So when the school shut down, no one even thought that it would affect anyone but the Russians. And it affected the Russian men the most because they're the ones that had to face the draft, maybe the possibility, if um, they couldn't continue their studies in time. Wait, wait, wait. There's still a draft in Russia? Oh, yeah. Mandatory. It's only a year. You have to start for a year until... Um... You're 27. I know it well, because <laughs> my boyfriend didn't serve. So he can't leave the country or they'll find out. But if he makes it to 27, which is in two weeks, he'll walk to the passport office and say, I tricked you for 27 years. And they'll say, <laughs> congratulations, and just give him a passport. No questions asked. <laughs> Honestly, we actually recently in my office were talking about this. And we, we found out that literally like no one in my office has served. I've only met one person in my whole time here, which is now almost three years that has served in the military. I mean, I've met like a fair number of people, but most of my friends haven't. Okay. Anyway, we oh, you're saying that's a problem for Russian males. Yeah. A lot of um, the male students that transferred were quoted in articles or just mentioned that they had transferred because for them, they couldn't just wait a year for the school to reopen again because a lot of the Russian students have been hired as research assistants which means that they get to continue receiving their stipends, but they're just helping professors with research and they aren't actually officially students. But a lot of the men, you know, couldn't afford to do that. But nothing was mentioned about the foreign students. We also can't be hired as research assistants because they can't give us work visas. So the point of my article was to address the students, both that graduated with the one-year degree and the ones that, like me, there are nine of us that are supposed to have a two-year official Russian master's degree and we can't get them. But what's worse is that a lot of the Russian students were able to pretty easily transfer to other schools in St. Petersburg if they wanted to, rather than wait. But because our department was specifically named political science, and since it was taught in English, and since it was so expensive, the only faculties in the entire country of Russia were allowed to transfer to, because they have to be the exact same, like exactly the same, happened to be in Moscow. And we were also only told of that choice a month ago, and we had 72 hours to decide if we were going to transfer or not, and it would have been in the middle of the semester. So the foreign students really got kind of the shitty end of the bargain, and no one knows about it. For example, I ran into a professor that taught my gender studies class uh, last spring, and she had another professor with her, and we stopped to get some tea, and he goes, oh, so what are you still doing in Russia if you're a former student? And I said, well, I am technically a current student, or I should be a current student. And he was so taken aback. He goes, I don't even know our school had real degrees for foreigners. That's what he said. Oh my God. Yeah, which was pretty insulting. So it's like this weird problem where this university is having so much, so many problems, and there's a lot of media attention and protests, and us nine foreign students, no one cares. 
I mean, I feel like I feel like I got a perspective of, of the foreign student experience a bit because and you did like interview other people. But the overall thing was also just explaining what the fuck is going on and like why it's closing, which we definitely need to clarify because there's threats to close it. Kind of also putting it in the context with this previous attempt to close the university that you already mentioned in 2008. Yeah, maybe Molly, if you don't mind, you could just kind of give us a rundown of these like two... Yeah, I know them very well. <laughs> so in 2008, the university was shut down in kind of what I would say a surprise attack where the Fire Safety Regulatory Commission of St. Petersburg decided that the building wasn't safe to house classes. But instead of sending letters or something, a bunch of police just came in, escorted everyone out, from what I understand, shut all the doors with police tape and said it was a police zone and no one could enter which was pretty intense. I think it happened over a weekend, so there weren't that many people there. It wasn't like they barged in the middle of classes, but it was basically like a hostile takeover of the building. You, it was illegal to step foot on the premises because you'd be breaking police tape. And when that happened, there was a huge hullabaloo and all these protests, and there was this weird avant-garde protest play put on. There's a documentary about it that one of the professor um, professors made, Ilya Uchekin. I think you can find it on his website. Very weird documentary. But anyway... They opened it again almost instantly. They said, oh, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have closed it for these reasons. You have to fix these fire safety things and you'll be open again. So actually during my introduction week last fall, when we were given a tour, there were all these posters everywhere for alcohol, drinking and safety awareness, like on every single stairway. And my professor told us that that was a result of the of what happened in 2008 is that they legally have to have all these like weird health rules you know to like to stay open at the time what was the speculation for what the reason was like why did the government actually try to shut it down i know a few years before that i'm not sure how many maybe two maybe it was more recently the school was given a really big grant to monitor the elections i forget which elections we'll have to look that up and they were made to give it back and not go through with the election monitoring Wait, how could this? I mean, if that if it was presidential elections, it would have been two thousand six. But it, yeah, that it happened in two thousand six. That's when it was. So the school was already kind of on the radar, and they also were paying foreign students stipends, which they don't do anymore, in dollars, which led to accusations that they were paying spies. <laughs> you laugh, Smith, but that's going to be like a big theme in this thing. What kind of spies? Spies to spy Americans to spy on the Russian government? Is that yeah. the accusation? Yeah, like foreign agents. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so it was like, exactly. It was like the university, this private university, was involving itself in something explicitly political. I don't know if it was local or federal, what bodies of government didn't like that it was local and that's imp that's an important distinction for what's happening now and yeah exactly what you said like they like accused they made this whole like fire thing as like an excuse to shut down the university but then it was very clear that as soon as the european university withdrew their sort of involvement with this political voter monitoring thing as soon as they did that they were like allowed to reopen it was like very it was more sort of like clean cut right yeah I, I don't know how exactly related like directly it was them withdrawing was sending the grant money back it was them it was the protests is from what i understand from the professors it was just the extreme number of people that took to the streets so quickly that what they thought was going to be a small incident closing the university quickly and quietly turned it out to a 
it, they were unable to kind of sweep it under the rug. And that's why they reopened it eventually. Yeah. And actually, I read something also that it's also important to note the sort of like international context of the time, like the relationship between Russia and like the West. So this is like pre-Crimea. So it actually was important that Russia sort of like uphold its reputation in the eyes of other countries and like that like people came out to protest was a sign that like okay exactly what you said like this is going to get a lot of negative attention so it's probably not worth pressing and I think when you explain what's happening now we'll see that there's like a big contrast. I can explain now as like succinctly as possible what this situation is now. Yeah. So what happened is it started last December all students just got an email saying our license has been suspended and all classes are canceled without further notice, which was pretty shocking. You know, it was like right around finals time. But what happened is our rector flew out to Moscow for a private meeting with Putin and Putin ordered the school open. That is super important. Putin, I think three times, has either publicly or in a written statement supported the school's opening again. And it's still closed, which is interesting to say the least that Putin is so verbally on our side, and yet the school is just not open. So after that happened, and um, Putin had the school reopen again, classes resumed as normal, but there was always the threat that the suspension, it's like our the, the revocation of our license was then revoked. So it could be reversed at any time. And so in the spring, as um, finals were coming up, all of the students in the whole school and every class, it was decided universally that we would end, I think, four weeks early, no, three weeks early with classes, and then have to turn in all of our finals by the next court date, which meant that all of our papers, instead of having a month and a half to write them, we had two weeks. So it meant that all of our paper lengths were shortened. We had, we met, our, our classes met a lot more often to try to get everything done. And then the court date passed and it was just postponed. So it was kind of a huge farce, you know, all the, all that work kind of for nothing. The school was still open. And it was only during the middle of the summer that the license was officially, officially taken away. And it's taken away by like some city, St. Petersburg, or is it a regional thing? It's it's um, Rasa Bernadzor, which is the Ministry of Education watchdog. Okay, so it is on like a federal level. Now it's a federal level. Before it was the St. Petersburg Fire Commission or something just not as import federally important as Rasa Bernadzor. Do you think, though, that this is coming from the top down? There's a bunch of different explanations. I think one of the weirdest things is the way that our international programs dean, Maria Trefimova, presented it all to us. And this is what all the students understood, was that when Rasa Bernadzor filed their official complaint to suspend the license back in December and Putin was against it. They realized they had overstepped their boundaries. You know, they thought they were doing something he'd like and they ended up doing something he didn't like. But it was already too late to get rid of it. They couldn't lose face. So the reason that all these court gates were pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and we only lost the license in the summer was that our school and Rasa Bernadzor were kind of behind the scenes working out this deal. Like, okay, you'll give up the license and then we'll get you a new one within 45 business days and it'll be totally clean and expedited and you'll be able to start the school year on time. That's what we all got, kind of like a Kafka-esque backdoor deal. And then when we applied for the new license, it was rejected because the women's bathroom on the first floor didn't fit the standards not what those standards were. It just didn't fit the standards. It just wasn't fit, which is, it doesn't make any sense, you know, Kafkaesque in a different way. They took the license in such a way that in order to get a new one, 
to fix the problems they say we have since they don't tell us what those are, it's impossible. You can't fix what you don't know is wrong. Yeah, that like line from your article was like so frustrating, like Rasa Bernadze. Their name, Smith, just so you know, like the name is like, it's like that Soviet contraction of three different words. Like Ras is Russia, Ober is like Abrazavanya is education, and Nadze is oversight or like inspection so it's like russian education inspectors whatever that body like they yeah you wrote in the article like they said that you that some standards weren't being met but then they wouldn't say which standards and then when like pressed they were like we're not like a consultant yeah, or something crazy <laughs> oh my fucking god <laughs> like, we don't consult on what exactly <laughs> is wrong it's like uh <laughs> that's when everyone realized it was political is this like the sort of thing like is this coming from putin directly or like or nobody's really sure. Clearly not. Well, but but he could say one thing in public and do other things in private. There's um, so one of the students that I interviewed who said I could use his name, uh, my friend Shu from China. He had a really interesting quote that I forget if it was used. I don't think it was ended up used in the article, but he said something like, this shows us how little we as students of political science actually know about the way the Kremlin works and operates. Because the obvious thing is if Putin supports it, then it should happen. But it turns out that's not the case. So he was making the point that Russia's politics are a lot more complicated than they appear at first glance, which, I mean, I agree with. And then something that um, a professor who's also the head of the international programs, uh, Ivan Karilla, when I interviewed him, this also didn't make into the article, but Alexei Kudrin is on our board of trustees. And he's within Putin's inner circle. And what Kirilla, my professor, who's a political science professor specializing in American-Russian relations, he thinks that with the elections coming up, there's a pretty good chance, or rather, there's a chance that Kudrin is slated to become the next prime minister instead of Medvedev. And that this thing happening with EUSP is actually someone lashing out at Kudrin. Someone being Putin or not being Putin? No, someone not being Putin. Someone that doesn't want him to become prime minister and is trying to make him look weak. But that just isn't really written about. I'm not really sure where Kirill got that from. I just, Kirill is a very smart guy that, whose opinion I trust. So it's interesting he brought it up. But it's not being reported in the media really as Kudrin having, being super connected with the school, even though he is on the board of trustees. What's Kudrin's like reputation? The only liberal one in all of Putin's inner circle. Okay. Yeah. One thing I'm just like curious about, I guess, is a broader picture. Like in the article, you're writing specifically about the experience of the foreign students, but like, what is the general like dialogue around what this means for liberal education in Russia? From what I understand, people are definitely disappointed in this, if that makes any sense. And I, I guess I'll definitely, I'll distinctly refer to the gender studies program at our school, which one of the members of the Duma called disgusting, if I remember correctly. Wait, was that M Milanov or? Yeah, I think it was Milanov. Just as a side note to, sorry to interrupt you for a second, but this is also important because Vitali. Milonov, first of all, as I understood it, not only did he make that comment, but he also like instigated the prosecutor's inspections in, into the university. Well, the inspections and that whole thing is a whole other one minute brief aside I'll do right now, is that not only did this Duma representative, you know, start the complaint against the school, but the school apparently, or Rasa Bernadzor gets, if not daily or weekly anymore, it used to get like hundreds of letters of complaint from Russian citizens complaining about the school, which is very strange. And our dean said that what it most likely was, was people, she didn't say who, 
paying homeless people or alcoholics to sign their names to these letters. And she showed us one of them that Rasa Bernadzor had sent in their um, packet of complaints. And it was a letter that said that a man, it was like, he's like, I'm a concerned citizen and I was outside of Gagarinskaya Ulitsa, which is the street the school's on, and I saw some ethnic looking men carrying pieces of wood outside of the building. And because of that, I'd like to make a formal complaint that the European University is hiring illegal Central Asian migrants to illegally restore a historical building. Oh my fucking god! And they got hundreds of those letters. You were talking. You just mentioned that he had like complained about the gender studies program. Yeah, because I think that the gender studies program was one of the most important parts of the school that made it so unique in Russia, and what kind of made it an institution that it's really a shame to lose. So I guess I'll tell too many anecdotes. The first one is that when I was in, I was living in Kazakhstan this summer, and you may not know this, but the first openly trans woman who became a foreign service officer was stationed in Kazakhstan. American foreign service? American. Okay. Yeah. And she would host these kind of secret LGBT nights. And I went to some with some friends just kind of, you know, to see what the scene was like there. And I befriended this Kazakh girl there who you know, was closeted and she was there. And when she found out and lived there and, you know, Kazakhstan, the the kind of country, it's kind of like, it's not as bad as Chechnya, but your brother will kill you for being gay. It's It's not pleasant to live there if you're different. And she got so excited when I told her that I studied at the European University because a professor had come to talk to her class at her university when she was studied there. She was a bit older about gender studies. Just she'd never even heard of the thing. And she had planned on entering this fall in doing a PhD on gender studies in Kazakhstan. And she sent me a Facebook message like every day for months after I got back here, or I guess it was like a month being like, is the school opening yet? Do you have any inside knowledge? Like, can I come for my PhD? And I had to be like, no, we're closed forever. And she was obviously very disappointed. And that's just kind of an example of the way that this school kind of affected people without, you wouldn't even think of that, you know, but this like closeted lesbian girl in Kazakhstan is stuck in Kazakhstan, you know, she'll probably have to get married to someone there. And she was like, you know, the school would have been a safe haven for her. And my other anecdote is that when I visited the two other schools that I was given the option to transfer to, so the background is that I'm going to be writing my thesis, which I'm still writing technically about Alexei Navalny and the kind of his role in the presidential campaign in the spring. And when I went to MGMO, which is the school in Moscow of international relations, that's kind of well known for being a strong Soviet institution where all the oligarchs kids go now, I couldn't have written my thesis there. They said that I could write a thesis entitled the role of third party candidates in the election and then have several case studies and he could be one of them. But a thesis with the title Navalny's role in the presidential election or anything with his name in it was not going to fly. And they were so spooked, they even called the European University to question them about me. And this school is like pretty young, right? Like it was 1996. Yeah, I want to check that. Um, And one thing about the name of the school too, the European University, 1994, is that at the time it was founded, European meant international. So it really should be called the International University, you know. I feel like now in our day and age, European University in Russia sounds a lot more menacing than it meant in 1994. You mean it's menacing from the perspective of Russians? Yeah, like it's more of like training European spies because it's European and it's foreign. Because one of the complaints against our school, an official complaint, was that our website promoted Western values. 
And do you know what they did to disprove it? This is what the dean told me, the international dean, is that there was a photo of a painting by some Western painter, I think by Picasso, you know, and they pointed to it and said, he's a Western painter. And this is a valuable Western painting. That's good. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about spies, Western agents, (laughs) spies. So, okay, one thing is I wanted to read a quote from one of the people who supposedly is, like, one of the inspectors from from that inspector company. Um, (laughs) I just don't like to pronounce the name. Watchdog company. (laughs) Is it a company? It's an organization. According to opendemocracy.net, she's one one of the experts who decided, who, like, was part of making the licensing license revoking issue happen. And it says she wrote the following quote in one of her research publications and the quote is the following certain forces the so-called quote global cabal how do you say that cabal yeah cabal and their agents in the u.s government have tried to create a unipolar system in the world and with this in mind have made every possible attempt to trigger the collapse of the russian world during boris yeltsin's presidency they tried to force an unacceptable value system on our country mobilizing hidden technologies to artificially aggravate tensions within the country as a zone of their interests, conflict between the older and younger generations, for example, or between members of different religions. With their stooges in Russia's power structures, they produce permanent reforms in our government and education systems and social habits and use international foundations and NGOs to stir up campaigns for rights and freedoms that were blown totally out of proportion, while they filled young people's and students' consciousness with ideas of, quote, liberation from government influence, end quote. This whole concept of accusing institutions, especially education institutions, of being like these training centers for like liberal or Western thinking that's like infiltrating the Russian system. I feel like you can trace that pattern of thought back to the... Cold War? I honestly wasn't going to say that. I was going to say much more recently, I was going to say the 2011 to 13 protests when like all the like American or Western NGOs or something were accused of like... The foreign agent law, which, you know, is super relevant now because Russia today just had to register as a foreign agent in the U.S. So the the foreign agent law in Russia, basically what happened, it was in 2012... Because I worked at a think tank and I wrote a letter of protest because it labeled this bird refuge a foreign agent and then no one would give it money and all these birds were dying like in Siberia. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So like the foreign agent law in Russia is kind of a shaming mechanism because in Russian foreign agent means kind of spy. So it's kind of no one wants to do business with a company called the spy company, the bad guy company. But the US foreign agent law is different. It's from the 90s, I think. And all it means is that if you're a foreign company, you have to just say that. And then you have to just have your finances be out in the open, somehow registered somewhere. And so Russia Today, which, as we know, is the Kremlin kind of sponsored English language-ish 
media thing didn't register as a foreign agent in the U.S. and their deadline to do so was about to pass. And basically the U.S. government asked them to register and they said no. And then the government said, please, or we'll sue you, maybe. And then they did. But in response to that, this happened, I think, like four days ago or something. In response to that, Russia has actually released a stronger version of their foreign agent law, which now affects a lot of European companies. And it also, I think, affects CNN. Admittedly, I didn't read any of these articles about RT, but I like a lot of liberal Western journalists were just like sounding the alarm over like censorship and like why forcing RT to register as a foreign agent is like not good. Is that something you agree with? Like where is that sentiment coming from? Do you know? I don't know. I feel like a little bit like making RT register in this really public way was kind of like poking the bear. You know, I don't really see the benefit of them doing that. And all it kind of did was cause these retaliation. It's kind of like what happened when the U.S. closed all of those consulates. And then in response, the Russian government expelled all these diplomats or like reduced the number of people that could work in consulates and embassies. And then in response to that, the U.S. government stopped issuing visas for a month and then said they were only going to issue them in Moscow, which they overturned a week ago, thank God, for the Russian citizens. But, you know, it's just kind of like this weird back and forth that I feel like it just it can't end well, you know? Yeah, it can't end well. And it's confusing because it's still like in the kind of almost petty phase. Yeah, it seemed kind of petty to me. Yeah, exactly. But then it becomes like, at least here, it can become very not petty and concrete when like for example when your license to teach is revoked as like a major university over some kind of like I know it's not clear exactly what the political reasons are but like the fact that the European University is a private institution that receives receives money from outside of Russia is like probably a reason or something important yeah it's little things and then the little things affect you personally. The quote I read, I think, makes it very clear that we're not just talking about, it's very much an ideological issue. It's not just about funding. I mean, the funding is sort of like how they prove that out, that there is some support from outside of Russia. But it's also the, especially with education, the really important thing is that like saying that they promote Western values is just like a weird twisted way of saying that the institution provides and encourages education and whatever discussion and debate and ways of thinking that do not necessarily conform to dominant ideology as prescribed by, for example, the Orthodox Church or the Russian federal government. And that's extremely frightening. I mean, especially in a university setting when that's sort of the fucking point. I'm curious about that, like the downfall of the European University, like a manifestation of one person being like super vindictive or is it a like concerted effort by the federal government and Putin presumably to like really tamp down any sort of advancements in liberal education in Russia? Like are people taking this as symbolic or are they just taking it as like a specific grudge that people have on this particular school? I think people are taking it as pretty symbolic. Besides Kirilla and his his theory that this is someone, just one person trying to take down Kudrin, it really seems like this is a this is the end of an era for liberal education in Russia. Yeah, and that this is an ideological trend that is happening in like 
recent years, and that's happening not only in education, but for example, within the church, like the transfer of St. Isaac's Cathedral from being a city museum to being part of the Russian Orthodox Church, the outrage over that, that's part of this sort of like trend. We actually had a joint protest with them in the spring. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I feel like I've seen a lot of posters also from multiple protests of EU students where like they kind of unite those two causes as like these things belong to the city itself. Like these things belong to us and they don't belong to the government. They don't belong to the church. In a lot of ways, the Russian Orthodox Church is sort of like a way for a particular ideology to be spread to people directly. And obviously the relationship between currently like Putin himself and the Orthodox Church is, if anything, growing stronger and stronger. Yeah, it's just like a way to sort of like control the way that values and ideologies are distributed is if you like, for example, control this extremely important institution like St. Isaac's Cathedral or if you decide to close this one university where like people are getting not it's not the only one but one of the major universities where people are getting sort of like alternative ways of thinking i didn't even mention that one of the big things about our whole court case too is that we were in a historical monument called the small marble palace so a lot of people thought that maybe the government just wanted the palace back you know that same sort of along those lines and there was um in alexei navalny's documentary yavamni dimon <laughs> about Dmitry Medvedev, who's the prime minister, and all of his very valuable land holdings and properties. It showed that he owned a lot of property surrounding the small marble palace, but not the palace itself. So there was also the hope that once the school gave up the palace, which it did, uh, legally was forced to, but it did, that maybe then they could open again in a new building across the street, which they've actually already moved into, but that didn't end up being the case. There's hope that they are going to reopen, right? Or has everybody given up? Well, the longer quotation from the international dean, programs dean, that didn't make it into the article, she said that she goes, I'm something like, I'm very optimistic that it will open. But then again, I predicted that Trump would win and Brexit wouldn't happen. So, you know. <laughs> Do you trust her overall? Like, I do not trust her optimism. I do not think the school will open. It is existing as a research institution, and it can exist for another year or two and continue to pay people's salaries, even without students. But last week, there was, in Chicago, there was a really big conference called the ACES Conference, which is an acronym that's the kind of Slavic language literature studies in America, the organization. And the European University was there with a huge stand for at the, at the student fair saying, come to our university, <laughs> apply here. These are our courses. These are our professors. Meet and greet. They had like a meet and greet wine jazz cocktail hour for prospective students. That's funny. That, Lily and I talk about a lot about this like Soviet phenomenon of this. What do we have a phrase for that, Lily? Like building stuff or like like pretending things are going to happen, but they don't actually happen. Something with the word absence in it, but we haven't yeah. coined our phrase yeah. yet. Then we're going to become famous and rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like the idea that like a lot of buildings were made, but nobody ever lived in them. Or like we had an episode where we talked about Beard Bajan, like where it's like this is going to be the Jewish homeland, but no yeah. Jews really ever lived there, like that sort of thing. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what Molly's doing now, which is translating a sex advice book. Hey. 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 Hey.
skitsen gerak idge Alten kunda tikitik jau i perge Bitten bank varda bush Internet sau buhush Minem vana minem rush Minem banda minem dush So at first I got a translation job for a former professor at the European University translating his book on the theory of the comparative method in historical analysis. Then when I finished that, I got another fun new translation job, which is a book called Number One Secrets of a Queen, which is a, I love that. a sex advice book for any woman of any age about how to find their inner queen and achieve what is it? Achieve happiness, not only just in life, but also between the sheets. Wait, can you give us some tips from the book? Well, I don't know if you know this, but there are 11 different types of orgasm. <laughs> yes. Okay, wait. Yeah. <laughs> can you go through some of them? Do you have them on hand? Oh, I have them open right now. Oh, yes. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> like what you would say is like the, you know, the normal, it would say number one is the vaginal orgasm. And then there's the clitoral orgasm. But then... It gets to things that are a little bit different. Like there's the A-spot orgasm. There's the deep spot orgasm. There's the U-spot orgasm. Wait, wait, wait. These are all in your vagina? No, they're in different They're in different parts of you. The The language is actually pretty hard to translate. It's a lot about, you know, periurethral glands and excretion of fluids. Did she clear up squirting? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, it says, however, you mustn't confuse this process with the process of urination. <laughs> Wait, squirting? Squirting, yeah. In Russian, they call it the fluid orgasm. It's the same as what we call, we just have a sort of a juvenile name. There's some fun tips here. Like one of them is to always have sexual talismans nearby, like a sexual keychain or a screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> but the the talisman itself isn't sexual. It's just like something that you have nearby when you're having sex. It says something that will push you to think sexual thoughts, emotions, and deep feelings. Like an erotic sculpture, a sensual photo, screensaver, or keychain. That's in the section called Your Talisman. <laughs> Another thing that he really likes, this is a man, not male Oh, author. it's a man. Oh, oh. <laughs> this is a man. What? This is a male sexologist <laughs> from Moscow. Oh my god, uh, we should interview him. Oh my god. He's he's an interesting guy. He holds seminars all over the world. So this is not related to the university at all. Yes. No, this is something <laughs> I found online. <laughs> but anyway, keep going. I want to hear more. Yeah, one thing he's like really into kegel exercises. He really wants you to do them on the way to work. Like he really wants you to do them behind the wheel of a car while listening to sensual music. Because it's like efficient cuz you are in the car anyway. Because because you traveling to and from work is about 480 hours of time a year. And if you delete 80 hours from that due to vacations and sick days and hospital time, he says, that's 400 free hours that most women <laughs> just dully click on the icons of their social media apps on their phone. But the queen does kegels. <laughs> I'm kind of like upset that it's a man, but also it's really hilarious. It's actually like not that sexist, you know, like he's he's like any age. You should do kegels even if you don't have a partner right now because the queen, the queen doesn't care. The queen should have multiple vibrators. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. This guy. I like this guy now. Okay. <laughs> it's also really like he's a sexologist. That's what he says. Yeah, he's a professional sexologist from Moscow based in Amsterdam. Oh, do you want to hear the four secrets of the true queen? Yes. Yes. It's They're pretty simple. It's know yourself, know men, 
interact with men, and know lots of sex techniques. That's how you become a queen. (laughs) And lots of kegels. (laughs) Okay, so he's not sexist, but he's heteronormative. You know, he uses the word partner a lot, which I like. And whenever he talks, when he's talking about the different kinds of orgasms, he's always like with a penis, with someone's fingers, or with a toy. You know, he always has three options. He's he is inclusive. He's pretty inclusive. Yeah. What about scissoring, Mr. Man? <laughs> yeah. No, he doesn't truly mention that because a lot of the kegels is about recreation and like recovering from childbirth pretty easily. But you can't overstrain yourself. He says that several times. He also says three different times that he is not promoting sexual promiscuity or debauchery. We are, though. We actually are officially promoting sexual promiscuity and debauchery, (laughs) just in case anyone wasn't aware. What are those? They have something for doing kegels. It's like a glass egg. Yeah, he calls it like a, I think just a toy, toy ball. Or he said a toy ball or much more. That's only when you get to the advanced level. Like in months zero through one, you're only supposed to do them three times a day, three or four days a week. You can't jump ahead to doing them at a hundred times at once. You can overkegel. Yeah. <laughs> You'll, he says it's like what the sportsmen call overtraining. What, like your vagina will get tired or something? Yeah. Get too tight. Too tight. <laughs> Nothing could get in there now. <laughs> I did 400 hours of kegels and now I never have sex. <laughs> you shut them all out. <laughs> <laughs> they make like those like abstinence classes they like force them to do kegels so that they can't have sex that's the episode thanks for listening be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at she's in russia subscribe to us on itunes and make sure you rate us subscribe also to our newsletter at she's in if you have any questions or comments or anything you would want us to plan the show call our voicemail box at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six and if you want us to like shout you out on social media when you do that just leave your handles in the message molly where can people find you on the internet you can find me at my twitter which is at molly j zuckerman thank you molly for yeah, coming thank on thank you very thank much. you guys <laughs>